Hey, it's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome uh, to Forest Park. Uh, th- again, thank you so much, Matt, on the fly, just to lead us in wonderful music. Praise the Lord uh, for that we can still gather and we can sing, and now we get to hear from the Word of God. But l- let me pray for us uh, before we get into the Word. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you. I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you make yourself known as you speak to us through your word and that you illuminate our our minds by your spirit so we can understand what we read. Lord, I thank you for the wonderful truths and the promises you give us in your word. I thank you that even as we look at this truth of how you satisfy and how you fulfill, how you meet the deepest needs of our hearts and how you are determined to save us and keep us. Lord, I thank you for these wonderful truths. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, even this passage is very hard for us to understand. Lord, I, I pray that you would speak to us, help us to understand, open up our ears, open up our hearts, open up our minds. Lord, Lord, address our fears and our anxieties. Convict our hearts. If there's any sin, expose it so that we may lay it before your feet, knowing that you, Lord Jesus, have paid for it and that there is freedom in you. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to to deal with this text in humility and grace in a way that honors you, that points to you. And Lord, for those that do not know you, for those who've not surrendered their life to you, Lord, I pray, can you make yourself known? Can you help them to experience you in a way they've never experienced you before? Can the words just jump off the pages and just hit them? and overwhelm them so that they can recognize their desperate need for you. So come, Lord, and speak to us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing through our series through the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to John. We're going to be in John chapter 6, verse 22. And so in our series, what John is trying to do and show us is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. The way he does it is by showing us how Jesus revealed his glory and also how Jesus received glory from the Father. And, And his ultimate purpose, the reason why he's writing the Gospel of John, the reason why he's going through this whole length to show you that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God is to invite you in so that you can believe and have life in his name. That is his ultimate goal and purpose. And so last week we looked at the miracle that Jesus performed after the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on the water. And what John is trying to show us through these miracles is that Jesus is the promised one of long ago, that he is the true and better Moses. And so we learn how Jesus is the great provider, how his provision satisfies and his provision endures and does not spoil because his provision is himself. And so after Jesus fed the thousands with a tiny little lunch, the people followed him, not so that they could believe in him, but they followed him so that they could see more miracles. 
And yet Jesus wanted to show them so much more because he didn't come to bring physical bread. He came to give himself. He did not come to provide for their temporary desires, but he came to fully satisfy them and fulfill them eternally as he addresses the needs of their hearts and hopefully even the needs of our hearts this morning. And so it is interesting, we're going to see in our text, how the people came asking questions. And yet Jesus doesn't answer them on their question, but rather he brings up the question of the deepest desires in our hearts. So let's look at John chapter 6, verse 22. It says this, The next day the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So, so let's stop here and just unpack it for a little bit. Obviously, uh, when they, the, the next day when they looked around, they didn't see Jesus' disciples. They did not see Jesus. And naturally, they were curious, where in the world did Jesus go? And so they got in their boats, went to the other side, and then they asked Jesus all these questions. In a sense, the, the, the questions they're wondering about is, when did you get here? How did you get here? And how long have you been here? And notice even how they address Jesus. They call him rabbi. And the reason I'm bringing it up to you is, is not to show you a little detail, but, but think about this. Think about the confusion they have when they address Jesus as rabbi because in a sense they're going to acknowledge him as a teacher and in his discussion with them they're going to refute his teachings. And then on top of it, the day before they thought he was the promised one, wanted to make him by king by force, even though they didn't understand the type of rule and reign of Jesus, and yet they still call him rabbi, which is showing us They still do not understand who Jesus is. They're still very confused about Jesus. And so they ask Jesus, how did you get here? How long? When? And notice Jesus doesn't answer their questions. And Jesus, with a strong, assertive questions, their motives in looking for him. And so in a sense, what what Jesus is doing in his response to the crowd, he he charges them with the pursuit, not because they saw the sign and wanted clarity and significance and meaning behind the sign, but rather they saw the miracle that Jesus performed from the bread and the fish, and they benefited from it, and now they wanted more. And right, right off the bat, John is showing us that the crowd didn't really understand the significance of the sign. They were not interested in understanding the significance of the sign. All they saw was what Jesus did. They benefited from it, and now they wanted more of it. Which if the crowd did not understand the significance of the sign, now we're kind of wondering, okay, what was the significance of the sign? 
Like, what did it really mean for Jesus to take this small lunch and feed the thousands? And what John is going to do is he's going to help us understand the hidden meaning of the sign by reporting this conversation with the crowd. Now, a little extra detail, a little extra credit. It's, it's interesting to note uh, this, this conversation that's happening between Jesus and the crowd is obviously happening in Capernaum. But if you look over to verse 59, even though we're not going to cover it, we're going to cover it next week, this conversation is happening in a synagogue. So in other words, it's not just happening out in the street, it's, it's, happening, out, it's happening in a synagogue, and, and we don't know when the conversation started in the synagogue, did this part that we read, did that part start in the synagogue, or did it move in the synagogue starting with verse 27? But I, I want you, as we read this text, this conversation that's taking place, it's happening in a synagogue, which means people were gathering, the word was probably read, and now these questions are coming to Jesus. So let's look at verse 27. Look at this charge he, he gives them. Don't work for food that perishes, but for food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has sent his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they ask. Jesus replied, This is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. So in a sense, by, by Jesus charging them, he, he tells them, Hey, don't work for food that spoils. And really what he's doing, he's rebuking their purely materialistic notion of the kingdom of God. In other words, just like the woman of the well where Jesus promised her living water, she was thinking about physical water and she's thinking, great, give me this water so that I don't have to go to the well every single day and deal with my guilt and shame. It will make life more easier. And they're thinking to themselves and what Jesus is charging them with, give us more bread so that we don't really have to work and it just comes easy and it provides for our comfortability and yet the crowd misunderstood Jesus's words when he was rebuking them do not work for food that spoils he's not focusing on the nature of work but rather he's focusing on the goal of work in other words what he is saying is if all you're doing is working so that you can provide for your physical needs it's, going, it's not going to fulfill you because here's what's going to happen. You're going to work, you're going to work, you're going to obtain, you're going to obtain, you're going to gather and you're going to gather and what happens to it? It spoils. That new car you worked so hard for in 15 years, it's kaput. The house that you're saving up for in 10, 15 years, you're going to have to replace almost everything because nothing endures forever and Jesus is saying if that's your only focus in life is to take care of your physical needs and you're chasing after it you're going to find yourself empty because it does not fulfill the only thing it does it spoils and notice the ignorance of this crowd and how they respond Look at verse 28. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. 
In other words, what they're saying is, hey, tell us the work that God requires, and we'll do it. Now, maybe immediately you're thinking, well, that's a good question, but, but think about the irony here. They are thinking in their own ability, whatever God requires of them, whatever God throws at them, just tell us and we'll do it. It's like, uh, did God not give you guys the law? How did you do in fulfilling the law? Well, we failed. Oh, and now you think whatever God is going to give you, you will be able to do? In other words, who are they looking to? To do what God requires. They're looking to themselves. In other words, they have faith in themselves. Whatever, you just tell us what to do and we will be able to do it. And yet they are even evading the fact that this eternal life is not what work they must be doing, but rather this eternal life is a gift that the Son of Man is giving to them. And so in a sense, they're like, yeah, yeah you, you can keep that. Just tell us what we need to be doing. Look, look, look at verse 29. Jesus responds to their misunderstanding and really to their ignorance and their arrogance. Verse 29, Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. In other words, what is the work that God requires? The work that God requires is faith. It's believing. But believing in what? Like we can argue that I think the crowd had tons of faith. Tons of faith in themselves because for you to stand before Jesus and say, you just tell me what I need to do and I'll get doing it's like you're saying, I'm trusting myself to accomplish what I need to accomplish, to achieve what I need to achieve. And Jesus, in a sense, says, no, that's not what the work of God requires. The work of God doesn't require in faith in self, but rather in the one that God had sent, which is, we know, a.k.a. Jesus. So why does he require faith in Jesus? Because Jesus is supremely the one who reveals God to us because unlike any other person, where does Jesus come from? He comes from God, the very throne room of God. He has been sent into the world to reveal God to us and to save people through himself. And so faith in Jesus is what God requires. And unfortunately, the crowd did not understand it. Look at how they responded to what God requires. Instead of Jesus giving them a list, he says, faith in the one God sent. In verse 30, they're, uh, they're saying, okay, well, what sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe in you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, you would think to yourself, what other sign do they need? Jesus just took a tiny little uh, lunch, and what did he do? He, he fed thousands with it. And, and you would think just because of the, 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 the wonderful miracle that Jesus performed, and even the speculation that the crowd had, that clearly this one could be the promised one. And yet, in a sense, that was not enough for them. So they're, they're saying to Jesus, okay, if you want us to believe in you and to believe that you've been sent from God, show us a sign. 
And what kind of sign do they want Jesus to show them? They want bread from heaven. And so, so, so more than likely, maybe in the synagogue reading, uh, they read Exodus chapter 16. And maybe uh, because the Passover is near and Jesus took the bread and, and it multiplied and it fed people and there were 12 baskets full. Remember last week we said, look at what John is trying to show us. He's trying to show us that Jesus is the true and better Moses. And so that is in the forefront of the people's mind. So they're thinking to themselves, if you are claiming to be better than Moses... Then, then clearly you should be able to perform the exact same sign that Moses performed and even better than Moses. And even the Jewish rabbis believed that the Messiah would come and he would call down bread from heaven. Because if Moses was the first redeemer and, and, and redeemed people out of Egypt and did all of these signs, the second redeemer and the better redeemer would do signs very similar to Moses, but even on a greater scale. And so in their minds, they, this is what they're thinking. If Moses did this, what are you going to do? Can you do something better than that? Can you provide bread from heaven? So here's the question. What would Jesus do? If Jesus gives into their demands, he in a sense would acknowledge and agree with the aspirations of making him king. And what did he avoid the previous day? He avoided that the crowd of forcefully make him king. So now if he does it, then he gives them more fuel for that aspiration. But even worse, if he does this miracle, then he would find himself captive to the hype of this demanding crowd. So how would he respond to the demands of the crowd? Look at, look at verse 32. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So again, Jesus, with a strong assertiveness, is saying, Hey guys, you're giving way too much attention to Moses and way too little attention to God. Was it Moses that provided the bread, or was it God? It wasn't Moses. It was God who ultimately provided the bread from heaven. But notice the words in verse 32. Notice how he shifts from past tense to present tense in verse 32. And this is significant for us to understand. And he says, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. That's past. But my father gives. What's that? that's present, gives you the true bread from heaven. What does that mean? What that means and what Jesus is saying is not only is the Father been ignored while Moses kind of played center stage in their minds, but the true bread is not the manna from the wilderness, but the true bread is the bread that God now gives. It's not back in the wilderness, otherwise he would have said, gave. But the bread that God gives right now, that is the true bread from heaven, which sets the stage now for verse 33 again. Look at verse 33. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
In other words, verse 33 helps us understand that Jesus is not only the one who provides true bread from heaven, but he is the true bread from heaven. And who are the recipients of this bread? Look, look at verse 33 again. Who are the recipients from this bread? No longer just the Jews, but who? The world. In other words, men and women, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of race, God gives this bread without distinction to the whole world. And what this text reminds us is that this bread of God is the revealer, Jesus, who reveals God to us, who speaks God's word to us, who alone can tell us about heavenly things, whose words, because he's the obedient son of God, are nothing less than the words of God himself. And so Jesus, in a sense, says this bread that the Father is giving wasn't the bread from the wilderness. It's the bread now. It is, in a sense, me. Did the crowd understand? No. They didn't know what Jesus was talking about. They're still thinking that Jesus is talking about physical bread, missing the point that Jesus is the bread of God. And now Jesus, in plain words, I don't know how more clearly you can say it. Look at what Jesus proclaims to correct this misunderstanding. Look at verse 35. What does he say? I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, You've seen me, and yet you do not believe. So what is Jesus saying? It's like, I am this bread. I'm the bread from heaven. I am the bread of God. And so the question that we have to ask is like, what does Jesus mean by being the bread of life? What does he mean by being the bread from heaven or the bread of God? I think the best way to understand it is in the promises of this bread. Look at at the second part of the promises of this, this bread, verse 34. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is that he is the one that satisfies. He is the living bread that satisfies our hunger. He is the living water that satisfies our thirst. In other words, he is the answer to the deep desire and longing of our hearts. He's the one that that fulfills this aching desire in our hearts. He gives us rest to our weary souls. He gives us life to our dead bodies in him. Life, satisfaction, rest, and fulfillment can only be found in him but what he is saying is it's not temporary notice the words never what does he mean by never never which means it's not temporary it is eternal so you're like okay this is all nice what does it have to do with us here's the reality as much as we would like to not put us on the side of the crowd because we're thinking these guys are kind of thick-headed. The reality of it is we are the crowd. 
And all of us can relate to this crowd because here's what's true for us and what's true for the crowd. Inside of their hearts, inside of our hearts is this deep yearning and longing, this unsatisfaction, this unrest that we find in our hearts and our souls. And what we try to do with it is we either try to suppress it by ignoring it or by chasing after things, thinking it will fulfill us. For, for, for example, in our culture, we have forgotten the word boredom. Like, like seriously, like when's the last time you were bored? Like, like for, for, for most of us, it's like, I don't have even time to be bored. And it's not because we're so busy, it's because we want to avoid boredom. Because when we're bored, what happens? We feel restless. We feel this, there's something that's missing. There's something in our hearts that we're longing for. There's this unsatisfaction, and we just don't know how to fill it. And what boredom does, it reveals to us the reality of it. Why do we try to avoid boredom at all costs? Because we do not want to deal with our restlessness. We do not want to deal with this deepest longing and desire that is unfulfilled. And so we chase after these things, thinking it will make us happy, thinking it will satisfy us, thinking it will give us rest. And this is why we say things like, if I can only achieve this, if I can only get to this level, if I can only make this goal, if my wife and my husband can only act like this, if my children can only be like this, if I can only have this much money, if I can only have this vehicle, if I can only have so much in my retirement account, I'll be satisfied and fulfilled. And yet, what's the reality? We're never happy. We're never fulfilled. We're never satisfied. We still remain restless. There's still an aching in our hearts. And what does Jesus say? Jesus looks to the crowd, and he looks to us, and he says, I am the answer to the deep longing of your soul, the aching in your heart, the restlessness in your weary body. And the promise he gives you if you come to me, if you believe in me, you will be fully satisfied. Now, I would like to think that the crowd got it, but they didn't. They did not rush to him in faith. In a moment, we're going to read that they began to grumble, but notice what Jesus does at the end of making the staggering claim. Look at verse 36. He says, but as I told you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. What Jesus is doing, he is charging the people with unbelief. In a sense, he acknowledges them that they have seen him, but not for who he truly is. They did not see him as the Son of God as the bread from God, the bread from heaven, the bread of life that fulfills and satisfies. And so the question we might be having is, like, how is it that someone can see Jesus, witness a miracle of Jesus, 
and yet not believe. And in the answering of the question, we might be wondering, does that mean Jesus failed in his mission? Well, was his mission not to come and save people, invite people to come and to believe? And yet here he's doing all these things and they're walking out, grumbling, want nothing to do with him. It even gets so bad that the disciples turn around like, yeah, we're just here because we have nowhere else to go. But what we have to understand and what the next couple verses, and this is the very complex part of the verses, is that Jesus' confidence and success in ministry does not rely in the positive responses of the people, but rather in the Father who gives him the people. So now we come to the very difficult part. If you've studied John, you know know exactly what I'm going to get into, and I'm just going to preach it, and hopefully we can trust that we can get a lot of truth from this text. Look at verse 37. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Sorry, I read too much. Let's just focus on verse 37 here. He says this. Let's read it again. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. What's Jesus saying in a sense? All of his confidence, all of his success in his mission is rooted in the Father who brings to pass his redemptive purposes. This is why Jesus says in verse 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And so when Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, what does he mean by that? Now, 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 some people say uh, it means that he will always, so if you come to him, he will always welcome him in. So in some of your translations, the word will be cast out, and in some of your translations, the word will be drive away. Now, I do think that there is a better interpretation than the, than the idea of all who comes to me be, will certainly be welcome. I, I think a better interpretation is this. Whoever comes to me, I will certainly keep in and preserve. Here's why I say it. Because if you take the word cast out, which is the correct uh, translation, you cannot cast something out that is in. If you're in, you're in. And what is Jesus saying? I won't cast you out. But if you're out, how can he cast you out? Now, some of you are saying, well, now it's kind of a weak argument because my translation says drive, and you can kind of drive somebody away that's out. So I was like, okay, I'll give it to you. It's kind of a weak argument. Here's a better reason. If we have a hard time with understanding a text, what do we look at? The rest of the text. And so the rest of the text really focuses in on how the Lord promises to keep you in and to preserve you. So let's look at uh, verse 38. He introduces now the reason why he will perfectly preserve and keep those in whom the Father gives. Verse 38 says this. For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
So what is Jesus saying here? Uh, Again, think about this keeping in. Think about this preserving and what he is saying. What's the purpose of Jesus? Why did Jesus come to earth and take on flesh and dwell among humanity? Was it to do his own will? No. The very reason of him coming was to do the will of the Father who sent him. And what is the will of the Father? That he should lose none that the Father has given him. Think about this idea. Jesus' success in ministry is not dependent on how people respond to him, whether they believe and accept him. But his success in ministry is his ability to keep those that the Father has freely given him. And what we see throughout in this passage, really, is we just see God's divine sovereign grace as how he's giving people to Jesus. And the promise that Jesus makes and the claim that Jesus makes is, I'm not going to lose anyone the Father gives me. Now, I know for for, for many of us, the idea of God's sovereign grace is controversial, is difficult for us to understand. And so this is a theme that we see throughout the Gospel of John, and we're even going to pick up this theme in John chapter 17. But what John is trying to do as he's recording the words of Jesus, John has no problem in emphasizing the sovereignty of God and saving sinners because he does not think it mitigates the responsibility of man. This is why he can say verse 37, verse 38, and verse 39 with full confidence. And then also verse 40. Because look at verse 40. Look at verse 40 again. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And there's another promise. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And so even in this verse, as it talks about man's responsibility to respond, he's freely giving that verse side by side with God's sovereignty of saving sinners because he believes the two in our minds feel like it's contradicting. But there is a beautiful tension. The sovereignty of God does not take away from the responsibility of man, and the responsibility of man does not take away from our dependence on God. And so he lays it out here. We'll move on and then we'll do some applications at the very end. Look at how the people responded to to Jesus. Look at how Jesus responded. Look at verse 41, sorry. Therefore, the Jews started complaining about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? So when you don't like somebody, what's your technique? Discredit him. What do we do today in our arguments with one another? We discredit. What does the crowd do? In their grumblings, they're trying to discredit Jesus. Yeah, we know his mama data. We know where he's coming from. He's not coming from anywhere special. We know the education level he got. We know what kind of breed he is. 
Who does he think he is? Look at how Jesus responds. Jesus answered them. Stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father sent me, draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. And what we see in the passage and what Jesus is addressing is as long as man is confident in his own ability without divine help, he will never be able to come to Jesus. He cannot believe only the Father can move him in that step. Now, now some of you are like saying, well, I have a hard time believing that. Again, don't believe my words. Look at the verse here. Look at the parallel between verse 37 and 44. Let's look at verse 37 again, and let's look at, at 44 again. Verse 37 says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And then in verse 44, he states the truth in a negative. He says in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And then you can look at verse 65 for yourself. It says the exact same thing. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. So what does the Father do? The Father draws. What does that mean? He leads he brings and what kind of drawing does the father exercise well i think verse 45 tells us it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by who by god what does that mean it's what the prophets longed for the prophets looked at the condition of the people and Jeremiah longed and even prophesied about a new covenant where God will put his law in their minds and write it in their hearts. Ezekiel looked forward to a day when God promises to give his people a new heart and a new spirit. Joel anticipated the time when God will pour out his spirit, not just on the Jews, but also on all the people. And what Jesus is saying to us and what Jesus is saying to the crowd, because again, the original question they asked Jesus is, what must we do? Tell us. We'll be able to do it. And Jesus, through a long way, is saying, look, without divine help, without the Father drawing you, teaching you, revealing truth to you, you will never be able to come to Jesus. And I know for some of you, you're like, I, this is hard for me to understand. So that means I can't come to Jesus on my own unless the Father draws you because you will never come to him on your own because you'll never recognize your need for him. And so what's the implications of this truth for us? If we cannot come to the Father without divine help, with him opening up our eyes, with him revealing truth to us, what does it mean we should be doing? It means we need to be praying. And why do we pray? Why do we pray for the Lord to open up people's eyes and hearts and mind? Why do we pray for the Lord to save people? 
Because that's what he does. That's his role. And so when we're praying, we're saying, Lord, do this. This is why we're even proclaiming the gospel truth. Here's why I, in confidence, can proclaim the gospel truth. Because my confidence is not in how I relate it, in a cute little story I put, and a little illustration for you to get it. My confidence is in the Lord, teaching your heart and your soul, opening up your eyes. So let's talk about application here. Because this text is very difficult. This text is hard. Sometimes we even argue over this text. And we miss the beautiful truth, the beautiful promise, and the wonderful invitation that's in the text. So what I want to do is, if you have a hard time with this text, I would say, that's okay. Breathe. Don't miss this truth. Don't miss this promise. Don't miss this invitation. Here's the wonderful truth, if you're taking notes, is that Jesus satisfies and fulfills the deepest needs of our hearts. Jesus satisfies and fulfills the deepest needs of our hearts. All of us, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you've experienced, I don't care where you come from, all of us have a longing and a desire and aching in our soul. We know there is something wrong. We know there's a restlessness inside of us. And as long as you suppress it and avoid it and chase after things, you will never be fulfilled and satisfied. You will never find rest for your weary soul and life for your body that is decaying right now. And what does Jesus tell us? The truth is, is that he fulfills, he satisfies, he gives life, he gives rest. And that, what that truth means is stop suppressing it, stop chasing after things that will never fulfill. Come to Jesus, trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus. Here is the wonderful promise. Jesus is committed to saving and keeping you. Jesus is committed in saving and keeping you. Here's the problem when we don't like this text because we feel like it's maybe unfair. We feel like it takes away our responsibility. What about our free will? All of that. But look at this wonderful promise that God makes. He is committed in keeping you and saving you. Another way of looking at it is, what's the assurance of our salvation? God's determination. His determination in saving you and keeping you. Now, now, most of us have professed Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. In other words, you have looked to Christ, you have believed in Christ because of your 
desperate need for Christ. God the Father has, and the Holy Spirit has opened up your eyes. You have recognized your inability to save yourself. You found yourself hopeless at your wits end. And finally you're saying, enough is enough. I cannot do it. I need the Lord to save me. And by his grace, you look to him. He opened up your eyes and he saved you to, for your, to, to himself. And that's wonderful. But what assurance do you have in that confession of Jesus Christ? What assurance do you have that your sins will be forgiven? Like, like how many of you sinned this week? Okay, everybody. Thank you for your honesty. How do you know that that sin that you've done, how many times have you asked forgiveness for that sin? How do you know that God is not going to look at you and say, oh man, I'm just tired. This is the same thing over and over again. When are you going to listen? When are you going to stop doing? Just, just stop doing it. That saying you're sorry doesn't mean anything. How many of you start thinking like that and you're thinking God doesn't love you anymore? God, God is going to cast you out because of how you're living your life? You're wondering, does God even care about me? Is there going to come a point where he's going to say, enough is enough, I'm abandoning you, you're on your own, because clearly you don't have it all together. Some of you even walk in here and you kind of don't want to sing and you don't want to read out scripture because you feel like you're a hypocrite and you feel like if you do it out loud, God might strike you down. Like all of those are thoughts that we have. How many of you even, let's just keep it real, how many of you are terrified of losing your salvation? How many of you are petrified that that somehow you're going to lose your faith and you're going to drift away from God beyond the the, the way where you can recover? Like, is that real that we all feel? So what assurance do you have? Be better. Do better. Try harder. But that doesn't give me any assurance because I'm the problem for my doubt. Look at this wonderful assurance. Let me read this text to you in Jesus' commitment and saving you and keeping you. In your doubts, read verse 37 for yourself. I'll, I'll read it for you. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. In other words, how long is the Lord committed in keeping you and not losing you? Forever, until the very last day where he raises you up. And then even look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Even that is a verse of assurance. Believe in him. Notice, does it describe perfect faith? Does it say purely believe? It just says believe in him. Trust in him. Look at Jesus' commitment in saving you and keeping you. That's your assurance. Now, here's the wonderful invitation. 
The invitation, if you're taking notes, is come to Jesus and believe in him. In other words, stop relying on your ability to fulfill yourself. So for those who, uh, two groups, first group, if you're unsatisfied, if you're unfulfilled, stop chasing after those things. Only Jesus can fulfill you. Stop relying on your ability to be saved. Come to Jesus and believe in Jesus. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, Neil, you just read several verses that says, I can't come to Jesus unless the Father draws me. I can't come to Jesus unless the Father grants it to me. I can't come to Jesus unless the Father gives me to Jesus. So what do I do? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Humble yourself. Humble yourself before the Lord. And pray, Lord, I know I can't save myself. Lord, I I know I can't come to Jesus without you making it known to me of why I even should come to Jesus. And what's the promises of Scripture? If you humble yourself before the Lord, and if you seek Him in prayer, what's the promise? Is He going to give it to you? Is He going to say, you know what, I'm sorry. I can't do that. No! No! But humble yourself. But here's the problem with all of our hearts. What do we not like to do? Humble ourselves. So what do we do? What's the invitation? Come and believe in him. And in that invitation, it's humble yourself before the Lord. So for some of you that might not believe in Jesus, you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus. Maybe you're even wrestling. I want to come to Jesus, but I don't know if the Father's granting to me, drawing me. What do I do? Right now, why don't you just, let, let's all right now, just let's, let's stop, let's pray. And if you're wrestling with that right now, in that spot right now, why don't you pray before the Lord? Say, Lord, I know I can't save myself. I know I'm unable to be satisfied without you. Can you help me come to Jesus? Can you help me recognize my need for Jesus? Can you help me to see really what my sin really is? And maybe for some of you that are believers, why don't you pray for those that don't believe that the Lord would open up their eyes? Because we believe that the Lord can and the Lord will. And then as you've humbled yourself before the Lord, come to Him, believe in Him, look to Him, trust in Him. Lord, you know who's in this room. You know what people are going through. You know the anxiety. You know those who belong to you and those who don't. And those who don't belong to you, Lord, as they are humbling themselves, 
you in your word has promised several times that if we humble ourselves before you and we ask whatever we ask in the name of Jesus, you shall give us. And so, Lord, we trust you that you would open up their eyes and save them, help them recognize their desperate need for you. Show them your determination in saving them and keeping them. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get ready to sit at the table, I'm just, I'm just so overwhelmed by the triune God's determination in saving us. And that this table is for those who are in Christ, for those who are believers. And what this table does is this table reminds us of the salvation that God has accomplished. And so even at times in our doubt of our salvation, this table reminds us of who Christ is and what he has done. And this is why we humble ourselves and we come to this table and we feast and we celebrate as we take the focus off of us and our ability and we now start to look to Christ. But I want to just give you this last assurance in your salvation. Think about God's determination in saving you. What assurance do we have? First of all, God's faithfulness. Second of all, the complete, wonderful work of Jesus on the cross. Third of all, the power of the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes, convict us of sin, and lead us to believe in Jesus Christ. Salvation begins with God and ends with God. And what is our responsibility? We simply receive in faith what God has freely given us. And as children of God in Christ, what is our responsibility? As we walk in the Spirit, as we look to the Lord, we take off our old sinful self and we put on the new self as we encourage one another with gospel truths, as we sit at the table and say, the Lord's body is for you, eat it. The Lord's blood is for you, drink it. Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember the promise that he has given you. He's never gonna lose you. He's never gonna cast you out. He is determined to save you and keep you and praise the Lord for that. And so with these truths, I want you to meditate on it as we distribute these elements, as we look to Christ, our perfect, wonderful Savior. Did everybody receive the elements? These elements don't save you. They do not do anything for you. They are simply visual reminders of the mighty Savior and the wonderful work he has accomplished for us on the cross. And this table helps us in our fears and in our doubts and sometimes even in our insecurities. When we are reminded that we don't have it all together, that we make crummy saviors, we encourage one another and say, you're right, you're a crummy savior. 
but you have a better and perfect Savior whose body was given to you. Eat it in remembrance of him. Whose blood was shed for you, the new covenant you have in him. Drink it in remembrance of him. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for the incredible work you've done for us through your Son on the cross. I am so grateful that you are the one who draws us and opens up our eyes. And that salvation begins with you and not with us, because if it began with us, it probably would never happen. And so, Lord, you know each and every one. Help us to look to you, trust in you. Help us to be encouraged by this wonderful truth that you fulfill and satisfy the deepest needs of our heart and that you are committed in saving us and keeping us. And Lord, I even pray for the invitation for not just unbelievers, but even for believers, that we can come to you and believe in you. And so Lord, for those that are far away, can you open up their eyes? Can you help them recognize their need for you? Can you help them as they look at their life? Can, they, can you help them to be unsatisfied and, and seeing that these things that they're chasing after does not satisfy, only you do. And may they humble themselves as they look to you, as they cry out to you, and as they cling to the promise that you will save them and grant them life. Please, Lord, may they respond. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and let us worship our mighty Savior.